It's time for the latest edition of Kiwani Back When, and joining us, of course, is our good friend Dave Clark. Good morning, everybody. How are things here in, in the hog capital? <laughs> <laughs> it's going well. Now, uh, we've got some, some big, heavy topics today, of course, that we did last time as well. We're doing a series on murders in Kiwani. Mm -hmm. Murders we wrote. Yeah. Yep. Um, I, I, with apologies to Angela Lansbury and, you know, uh, murders we, we wrote and so forth. The last time we talked about the Sandra Brown murder and went through through that, I picked the top five, what I think, and there's obviously been more murders in Kiwani. Obviously not a lot, but I mean, there might be some others that the people can remember and so forth. But there was the one uh, of Sandra Brown we talked about last time. And, uh, and today, um, uh, we're moving to 1995. That was 78 when we had Sandra Brown's unfortunate demise. Um, in 1995, we had three people murdered in one year. And it really got people sitting up and taking notice, uh, putting yourself in, in, in that time period. Um, uh, because it was so unusual, the first one was a double homicide at Phyllis Q and Brew, which we're gonna talk about here in a minute. The second one was a, uh, a, a well-known Kiwani woman, uh, Lori Gwynn, who uh, uh, was taken from a local bar and taken out and beaten and, and, and strangled and, and dumped in the canal and, uh, and all of it that happened with that. But I can recall, Back when I uh, was first covering the police beat uh, in the mid-70s, uh, then police chief Dean Watson uh, once told me that uh, he thought that he'd been around, of course he'd been an officer since the 50s and you know he'd been around forever, a, a Kiwani native, and he said, I think I know the people in Kiwani well enough after all these years and dealing with them on the level we do as police officers that I can say honestly, almost honestly, that there is no one in Kiwani that is capable of cold-blooded murder. And up to that point, there hadn't really been, you know, you had your uh, occasional domestic abuses that wound up with some, the husband shooting the wife or the wife shooting the husband. Uh, as he said, you know, you had your basic wife beaters, your burglars, your petty thieves, uh, occasional bar brawlers, you know, stuff like that was mostly the, the level of crime that, that happened, but nobody just flat out shot somebody. That all changed in, 19, in February of 1995, almost. Um, you know, we're coming up to the anniversary here in, in February of, of the Phillies Q and Brew uh, double homicide, which was a, just a, a blatant spur of the moment thing that had absolutely no motive. Uh, there was alcohol involved, uh, but it was among friends basically, or people that knew each other. Uh, but it shocked nobody, you know, and most of these other ones, even like the one with, with Sandra Brown and, and uh, one of the other ones we're gonna be talking about here uh, in one of the future episodes, they were always considered to be drifters or transients or people. It's nobody around here that would do that. Somebody came in here and did that. Well, the thing with Phyllis Q and Brew was that it was somebody here that did it to one of us. I mean, this was this was personal. This was up. The, uh, uh, I, I know Chief Joe Dakin, who was the police chief then, you know, even uh, uh, was surprised, you know, that this had happened in, 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 in Kiwani. Then by the time it happened in August, when we have Lori Gwynn, Dakin was doing, doing uh, articles in the paper about educating women about what we think of more rarely now is when you go to a bar, don't just sit with any guy, you know, who talks to you. Be more on your guard. Uh, go with somebody. Don't go alone. You know, all these are stranger danger things, you know, for adults that, that we've come up with since then. And all that was, we were still kind of a naive, uh, you know, world back in, in 95. But uh, anyway, the, uh, the Phillies Q and Brew uh, was, was really a, a shocker to everybody. Uh, it happened on, a, what was it, uh, taking the date here, it happened on a Monday night about 10, a little after 10 o'clock, February 20th, 1995. 
and a, a young woman from Cambridge uh, named Rain Baldwin was tending bar. She'd only been there less than a week. She just started working there. Phyllis Q and Brew, by the way, was out right on the corner of Tenney and South. It's about where uh, the H&R Block thing is now. You know, as you go around the curve there, there was a building. I think the building's gone now, that part of it. But it was part of the Bracken Shopping Center complex. And it had been, it had been a popular bar, but it was, you know, it was kind of a, a, a rough place. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, the manager, Diane uh, D. Turley, uh, came in towards closing. And uh, just to check on her and see how she was doing, I was sitting at the bar talking to her. And there was this couple, Martin and Marsha Woolley. And... Uh, they were there at the time, and apparently they had stayed until they almost closed and so forth. But they all basically knew each other. Turley uh, was friends with, with uh, Marsha Woolley. They had um, uh, played cards together. They uh, knew each other for years. Uh, the two Woolleys had run a tattoo parlor in Kiwani. Uh, Diane had gotten a tattoo there a few months earlier before they went out of business. Um, and uh, Rain Baldwin actually went to school with Martin Woolley. They were in the same class in, in Kiwani High School. They, they weren't good friends, but I mean, I know you, you know me, you know, hi, how you doing, you know, that, that sort of thing. Uh, Diane was 33, uh, Rain was 29. I believe Martin was 29, and I think Marsha was 30, 31. They were all about the same age. And uh, something got out of hand. Uh, from the work they pieced together afterwards, uh, a, a, what they called a, a petty argument began between Marcia and Diane. Marcia had tended bar there before with Diane, so they had some history about maybe it was a dispute over who became manager and who quit, you know, something happened. They didn't really say what it was, but they started this, it was a, just a petty argument. They, they, weren't, they weren't pulling hair, they weren't screaming, they, they hadn't reached the point of, you know, the elevated status and so forth. And all of a sudden, Martin Woolley just pulls out this 9mm handgun and shoots the two women point blank in the forehead, up close range, cold blooded. And at that point, all shock breaks loose. They're sitting in the bar with these two dead people. They, they thought they would uh, maybe take the money. There was a couple of bags of money, uh, three, two or three hundred dollars in it, and uh, make it look like a robbery and, and, and got out of the place. About 20 minutes later, a customer named Pete Doslager uh, just came wandering in, you know, towards closing time. Nobody was around, nobody at the bar and found, saw the bodies and nobody else was in there, everybody else had gone. So he made the 911 call to, to a police and that started the whole ball rolling. They had investigators from the state come in and so forth. They literally left the bodies there for six hours. It was early the next morning before they actually took them out. They were analyzing everything and looking the place over. At first they thought, well first they eliminated Doslager. They gave him a polygraph test and, and you know, he, he was just an innocent bystander who happened to stumble on this thing. Um, they also, also checked the motel, which was just a little ways to the south, you know, where the, it is now. It was a Super 8 at the time. And uh, there was a man, rather strange, he had, he had checked in at 7.30 that night, and he checked out at 10.30 that night. Hmm. And they tracked him down, and they, they got, found out who he was. They talked to the bartender uh, who'd been there earlier, and then they talked to some of the customers, and they eliminated him. He had some, it's a little strange, that's all, you know, when you check, usually you check in for the night, but for some reason, they thought the timing, at 10.30, you know, he checked out, maybe he was trying to flee. But he had an alibi, or if he'd, where, wherever he went, they found out, and that sort of thing, so that, that was eliminated. Um, so the next day, on Tuesday, they started interviewing customers. They rounded up who had been there. They got the, bar, the daytime bartender uh, who had been there till about 6.15 or 6.30. Everybody remembered the Woolies being there, so the Woolies came in and, uh, and testified and or were, were interviewed, you know, what they remembered, what they saw, and that sort of thing. They thought they were just customers at the time. As a matter of fact, uh, this story and the one by Lori, about Lori Gwynn were written by 
Martha Zalok, who just passed away recently, by the way, she was, she was one of the, the definitive crime reporters of our time uh, here in the Star Courier. She, she was compassionate, she was tenacious, she was everything you'd ever want. She knew the cops, they trusted her, uh, and she, she interviewed the family members, you know, the whole, she really was a crime reporter and, and did a, a bang up job on the whole thing. And uh, she had interviewed, uh, she was uh, in the lobby of the police station, which at the time was the old station downtown, the, the one out here on, on, in the park. Now it wasn't built until 2000. But anyway, uh, Marsha Woolley is coming out of the, uh, of the uh, uh, police station. And she, uh, she stops her and just to interview her, you know, what do you think about this? And uh, there's a quote that they used on the front page of the paper, just attributed to a patron in the bar earlier in the evening. Didn't say who it was. Jesus, God, I don't believe this. What's this world coming to? The next day they found out that the woman that Martha had talked to was Marsha Woolley and she was the one <laughs> that had been there for the shooting. They, uh, the, the, they, they brought them in separately then and, and that's where, they, that's where they, they, they blew it because what implicated them was that their story didn't match up. They, they, when they left, when they got there, all, and when people remembered them there and so forth, it turns out they were there the whole time, they never left. And, uh, and, uh, so they, they, and then Martin finally just flat out confessed. And, the strange thing was that he and all, all she got charged. He got charged with with uh, four counts of murder. She got charged with obstruction of justice because she tried to lie to him and that sort of thing. But the strange thing about um, the thing, well, then 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 they had the the two of them there. Uh, the strange thing about was that during the day, uh, witnesses said that Martin Woolley had been bragging consistently about how he was a type of person who could go into what he called a fast food restaurant and shoot everybody and walk out and nothing would happen. Hmm. And so that was kind of what was in his head, you know, and you kind of wonder if maybe his wife is arguing with this woman. Marsha had been drinking too much. Dee was probably trying to, you know, settle her down or whatever. And for some reason, he just decided this was it. I'm going to pull my gun out and shoot these people, whether it was who knows what, you know, the, what was the impetus behind it. So, um, they, they had their, their, two, uh, 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 their two suspects, and, and actually they confessed. It, it was a, a pretty much a slam dunk. Within 48 hours, they had these two people confess. They finally just admitted to everything. They didn't, never did say why. The money they recovered, the gun they recovered. Uh, Martin Woolley had borrowed a friend's pickup truck that people, that witnesses had seen out in front. Uh, that's how they established the fact they were there. The pickup truck was there all day long, and so witnesses went by, and yeah, that's you know, so-and-so's truck. And the gun was hidden in the truck. It, the other guy got called in, but I mean, he didn't know. You know, Martin had borrowed his pickup truck to go to the bar, and he didn't know the gun was there, and so he pretty much uh, was let go too. But uh, so anyway, they, uh, the the interesting thing about it was that they, you know, here again they they, they knew each other way back when. Uh, they'd known each other off and on for years. The, the uh, Martha interviewed the mother of Marsha Woolley, and she couldn't figure it out because you know they were friends. They knew each other. Uh, just something triggered, you know, this moment, and boom, everything went up, and then they had to clean the mess up and, and get out of there. Yeah. So that was the story on, on Marsha. You know, I, you mentioned a detail in there that could play into this, and that is that they had a business, it went out of business. Like, that can lead to a lot of very different things. You could imagine uh, that coming into play. Yeah, that was one of the, one of the motives that they considered possible 
was that they had they had their business had failed. They had a tattoo parlor here in Kiwana. He was an unemployed tattoo artist. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, how much better do you get than that when you're looking for a murder suspect? <laughs> but but he uh, yeah they uh, and they supposedly were planning to leave town and start a new life elsewhere. And you know that was the family's story yeah. is that you know that was the spin that, that they put on it. And there might have been some pressure there about you know the failed business and right. uh, what am I going to do? And maybe I don't want to go to leave Kiwani. Maybe you know things aren't working out. And it was just the stress of the frustration. You hate to make that an excuse, but you know that could prompt people to to snap, I guess, or whatever. And maybe other things were going yeah. on in their marriage or with the family or with other people. Yeah, this none of that ever. But then uh, Martin Woolley goes on to have a sort of a, another minor footnote in Illinois history when George Ryan ends the death penalty mm-hmm. and he's right. not uh, then executed. Yep. Yeah, he uh, and I don't know whatever happened to him. If he's still on death row somewhere, or or if he's uh, passed away since then, I don't recall hearing or what happened to Marsha. You know, that's we'll leave that for another you know series of stories on where are they now or or whatever uh, stuff like that. But uh, but yeah, I think that's pretty much the story. On uh, uh, and of course they both got sentenced to prison. He got the death penalty. Ted Hamer, there was uh, there was two people uh, that Ted Hamer, who was the state's attorney at the time had recommended for the death row a bang bang right in a row and the other one was a guy named Raymond Burgess and he was from like Kelowna or somewhere and he was charged with you know uh, killing a minor or you know, some kind of I can't remember what it was but uh, it wasn't related to this but yeah Hamer was was going for two death penalties at the same time mm-hmm. and like I said he finally finally got it and reading reading the old stories about this and, the, and of course the case we're going to talk about in a moment uh, Mr. Hamer is uh, very well remembered and very well respected. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, he became a judge after that, too. Uh, yeah, but those were some some really rough years. I remember the, uh, the Star Courier came out with an editorial after the Lori Gwynn thing in, in August, which was seven months later, almost to the day, uh, August 20th, August 20th, or February 20th, August 20th, almost the same time, 10 o'clock, and, of course, hers was, was leading over into the next day on Monday. But... Uh, but the Star Courier made a point of, you know, what's happening. You know, this is where people were finally starting to get more conscious of the outside world. Uh, you know, the, the one with Lori Gwynn were outsiders. They were drifters. You know, we're getting back to the old thing about people coming in here and doing it to us. Uh, but the Martin Woolley thing really shook people up, and Mar- Martin and Marsha Woolley, uh, simply because, you know, they were local people. I mean, they weren't well-known. They were just ordinary uh, average Kiwanians, you know, uh, trying to make a living. But uh, and of course, then the sad thing about about Baldwin and and uh, and uh, Turley, you know, too, that was the that was what hit people the hardest was they just out of the clear blue sky, boom, bang, bang. There wasn't even any any preparation, no argument, no nothing. Just it was a spontaneous execution. Mm-hmm. Is what it was, and for no apparent reason. That was what people could never quite figure out. No matter what he came up with, you know, it, it didn't make any any sense. And here again, now nowadays we look at mental health. There might have been some issues there. You know, of course, back in those days mental health was just becoming a concern uh, yeah. with how to deal with <coughs> with people <coughs> with alcohol. They, they claimed that, that that he, like a, like a night of the murder, like I said, he was what they called, the state police called intoxicated. You know, he'd been drinking, but he wasn't drunk. But she, on the other hand, was pretty well splattered, you know, pretty well drunk, which maybe is what led to the argument with her and, and, and Turley and that sort of thing. So anyway, uh, Anything else on that one, or should we move on? No, let's, uh, let's tell me about uh, Lori Gwynn. Lori Gwynn, uh, here again, uh, uh, another, uh, she was a well-known Kiwanian. 
She was, uh, yeah, she was a member of the business professionals, women business professionals. 1991 uh, Business and Professional Woman of the Year, and then yeah. later she joined the club. Uh, Henry County was, Health Department. Is she, where was she was the supervisor of the homemaker program uh, for 10 years before this happened, and at the time it happened. Uh, before that, she'd been head cashier for the commissary at the Rock Island Arsenal, according to her obituary. Uh, she had a son. I didn't catch how old he was, uh, but she was 42. She was a divorcee. Um, she was quite attractive, quite popular. Her father, Cliff, was a Cliff Bernal, was a, a Kiwani police officer, had been for, for many years. Uh, 1971, graduated Kiwani High School, and one night she went to a bar, which 42-year-old divorcees maybe do from time to time. Grass Place on the west end of Rose Street, uh, right across from the entrance to the boiler shop, um, was a popular bar back then. You know, I mean, it wasn't the Wani Farm or it wasn't the Pioneer Club or, or, uh, or Cernos or Lloyd's or whatever, but it was a popular neighborhood bar. Kind of like Philly. Philly's was a little more into the motorcycle gang aspect of things, but Philly's was, or uh, Grass was, was, was a little, little more of a civilized bar. But here again, um, there was somebody in the bar who saw her, Early Ray Davis. And he was 40, be a couple years younger. And his sidekick, a guy named James Lindsley, who was 24. Davis was from Peoria. Uh, Lindsley was from Galesburg. But they were drifters. They had no real place that they were. And uh, later on, uh, uh, when, they, when they found out, when they narrowed it down to him, which happened within, within hours almost, within days, uh, these two people, the people in Peoria, the police in Peoria knew him very well. He was a suspect in six homicides down there. Uh, and not all the bodies had been recovered in those homicides, but he'd never, never, they'd never nailed him on one. He was famous for beating up prostitutes, uh, but he had a habit of, of beating up, uh, he would go into a bar, he would, he would cut somebody out of the herd, as they say. And then he would, and he was rather a handsome guy looking at the pictures. If you looked at him just the right way, he looked a little bit like Elvis Presley, you know, mm. in his later years. But uh, so anyway, he would, he would hook with the, the finesse, you know, get this gal going. And after a few drinks, and then on and on and on, and uh, then he would he would let's go to a certain place, or let's go to my place, or let's go to another bar, or whatever, get him out of the establishment, and uh, and then take them somewhere and do do harm to him. Uh, in this case, they they left the bar at about 1:30 on Monday morning. This started on Sunday night out there. Everybody was having a good time. There were a lot of people there. Here again, many witnesses to interview. They could describe him. A lot of people knew who he was from the name. He, it wasn't local, but they picked up the name or whatever. Well, yeah, the name Arlie stands out. Yeah, yeah, and, and maybe the ones that were with her, I don't know who she was with or whatever, but they, here again, where she made the mistake was walking out the door, and maybe she thought she was in control of things, but, you know, this guy seemed like a nice guy. He had probably had a big story, a big line. Maybe his mother died. His mother lived in Peoria, which was kind of the thing that they kept kept him coming back to this, this area. But anyway, uh, he and, and, and Lindsley... Had, had pitched a tent uh, in the 200 block of East 6th Street. If you know where 6th and Main is, okay, East 6th Street goes east from uh, where, where the uh, uh, Red Apple restaurant is, you know, that's, and where, where your approved auto parts is. It's that block going east, east from, from there. And it was an old shack, and they think it was, it was a guy named Junior Hansen, and they think he was a cousin of Early Rage or something. There was some family relationship. But anyway, he had an old wreck of a house, and, a, and the yard was all full of you know, furniture and garbage and trash, and it was just a real, real messy place. But Arlie and, and Jim had pitched a tent there. They were staying in a tent. So they, you know, that's where she should have probably started running the other way. Hey, here's my tent, you know. 
And uh, so they get her in the tent and they beat her and strangle her and kill her. He had a habit, they said, of, of uh, strangling people, strangling women, almost to the point of death and then releasing and strangle and release and strangle and release. And then finally he would, you know, just strangle them to death. Uh, they took, uh, they took the, the body, uh, they rolled it up in a rug, which people, which neighbors, it's amazing what people saw and didn't say anything. Mm. People knew these guys were there. They heard screams overnight, you know, a woman screaming. Uh, they saw somebody taking this, something with a rolled up rug and putting it in there. 1975 Blue Dodge Dart. And uh, they took her up to the uh, Hennepin Canal a quarter mile north of Anawan, and that was on Monday morning. On, uh, on Tuesday afternoon, some fishermen going up to the canal found the body up there in the lake. That's when they, they knew. When she didn't show up for work on Monday, they were looking for her, but people thought maybe she was you know, with a friend or whatever. They hadn't really pinned all that, that down yet. But what was interesting was that what, a comment one of the policemen made that said, you know, every weekend we get calls, uh, or no, that, that, he said that weekend, uh, he said it was strange, that they got all these calls from people complaining about somebody's dog barking. But somebody heard somebody scream and didn't bother calling the police. You know, that, mm -hmm. was, what, that was, was strange to them. If you, you know, hear, if you hear something, say something, see something, say something, you know, just don't worry about the neighbor's dog. But if you hear a woman screaming and they even had what she said, it was please don't do that or something, yeah. you know, that what this woman, whoever she was, it's kind of like the Sandra Brown thing. People said they heard screams of, or right. noises or something coming from. One of, the, one of the strangest things that, and kind of one of the things that this surprises me when it comes to true crime stories is that there was this, a New York cop who had this amazing quote. He said, if you're being attacked as a woman, don't yell rape, mm -hmm. yell fire, because people will come running if there's a fire. Oh, yeah. Yeah, people that's will, a good point. You know, and that's just shocking. Yeah. It just, it just, sort, of, it just sort of hits you when you There's a wall. That. I don't want to be involved. You know, I, I yeah. don't want, oh, it's terrible, but that's somebody else's problem, that sort of thing. But, uh, but then <laughs> the, 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 the timeline, it, it's kind of what, what, what's interesting uh, here was that they, uh, uh, when they started, when they found out who these two people were, they were the suspects. They were looking for them, and they they knew this 1975 blue Dodge Dart was what they were looking for. Enter the, na the neighbors. They find out. They find the body. Then they find out that actually somebody saw this blue Dodge Dart leaving the canal road and going on to I-80, going west. So they knew they were westbound. So they were they were looking out west. Oddly enough. It was about 1.30 in uh, Tuesday afternoon when, they, when, they found the, when the fishermen found the body up there. That morning, earlier that day, about 4.30, um, Arlie Ray and Lindsley uh, were stopped in the dart in Coffeyville, Kansas, on a traffic stop. It turned out Lindsley had a, an outstanding warrant from Washington State, so they held him but they let Arlie Ray go. He was just a passenger in the car. They had nothing on him. They didn't, they were, this was before the body had even been found. They, they hadn't made the connection yet. Obviously, he was a suspect back here, but there was no nationwide alert looking for this guy yet, so he took off. So anyway, once the, then, of course, later that day, they find out there was a murder in Kiwani, uh, Lori Gwynn, and they were looking for these two guys. Oh, we got one of them in the jail. So they, they grabbed Lindsley. A couple of Kiwani officers went out and brought him back. So they, they had him in tow. But Arlie Ray was still running uh, loose. And there was this 
Somebody said that they heard he was maybe at the bar or something, said they were heading for Oklahoma, so they thought maybe that's where they're going for. But then somebody thought that they saw him up by uh, uh, Propistown in some park or something, and then they thought there was a car stolen. I mean, there's a thing about where is he at? Right. And there was this thought that he was coming back here, maybe because it was mom in Peoria or the Galesburg connection or whatever. So there was this fear until they finally found out where he popped up at. That, that he might still be roaming here again, like with Sandra Brown. This, this murderer is running amongst us here. What are we going to do? Where they found him, the, the Tucson Police Department found, of all things, this guy is still driving the 75 Blue Dart. He's in Tucson, Arizona, and they figure he's getting ready to go across the border into Mexico. They got him in a motel. He had, he, all the way along, he had told people he had a handgun, had a gun in his car, and his gun was with him, and if anybody tried to take him, he was going to have a shootout. He, you know, threatened and all that stuff. But it turns out they, they got him apparently without gunfire and so forth. They grabbed him in Tucson, and then, you know, he's drugged back to, to Henry County as well, uh, into the clutches of Ted Hamer, you know, <laughs> and the Kiwana Police Department and Henry County Sheriff's deputies and, and all that kind of stuff. But the, the, the interesting thing about, about this one was that, uh, that they finally caught him. The Peoria police were just ecstatic because they've been trying to pin down this guy for, for years. They knew, they knew of him and they had his reputation and they had cases that they couldn't close because of him. But here again, I think part of it was fishermen. Here again, it was, it was a couple of people with a chance that decided to go fishing on Tuesday afternoon and Unfortunately, there she was. She could have laid in the canal if nobody had gone up there to fish, you know, for weeks or months, and nobody would have known where she went. We would have had a Sandra Brown case where, you know, where did she ever wind up at, and and uh, that sort of thing. But it was so sad because she was a popular uh, a woman here in town. Yeah, this is um, this is the she's the kind of victim that you look at and go, this is not something that happens to this person. Well, or or into this town. That's when people, you know, the Phillies Q and Brew thing was, was was quite a shock. But when this happened and the way it happened. Of course, it was drifters. Again, it wasn't one of us. Right. But the fact that somebody came here and did this to a in a town of thirteen thousand and, and got away with it, I, I will say, uh, as, as in the case uh, with with both these cases, uh, the Kiwani Police Department, Henry County Sheriff's Office, they had the state crime lab. They had all the state troopers. I mean, they gave credit all the way down the line, Henry County Sheriff and everything. Um, uh, but got got it done in a relatively fast manner. It wasn't the Sandra Brown thing where we're still sitting here, you know, 45 years later wondering what happened. They pretty much had this, you know, interviewed the witnesses, uh, got the evidence, you know, had everything to, to tie it together and uh, presented it to the state's attorney and took it to the, the judge and, and the jury and, and there they go. Um, but, you know, that was what, you know, uh, it was. And also, Dakin said that he was, Chief Dakin said that he was glad that they were finally able to resolve the case because it was getting close to hog days. See, mm -hmm. this is August 20th, 21st yeah. of, uh, uh, of, of 1995, and their hog days were starting like maybe that next weekend or whatever. I don't know what the dates were that year, but it was pretty close. And he was afraid that if we had hog days, you know, all the people that come to town, and some are a little nefarious, you know, you don't know where, who these people are, are and what they're doing. And the cops have a hard time just keeping track of, you know, that's a good chance for Arlie Ray to slip back into town go to another bar, pick up another, you know, cut out another, call another girl out of the herd and take her off and, and uh, have his way with her and so forth. But uh, anyway, that was the uh, story on, on, on Lori Gwynn. It was so sad and nice family too. Uh, I've known Cliff Pernell for years. He's deceased now too. Uh, great, I knew him as an officer and a retired officer and, 
and uh, a great family. And uh, I don't know whatever happened to the boy. They had a scholarship fund set up for him, uh, Daniel. It's heartbreaking uh, to read uh, Mr. Fernald's uh, talk about her. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, it, it hit him pretty hard. The, yeah. the reporting is just exceptional on yeah. this. And I do want to, again, give you a chance to highlight uh, this reporter. Who's, oh, Martha Zalo. Yeah, yeah, she did. Because yeah. I've been reading these articles today, and they're yeah. just incredible. The, the amount of uh, care that she puts into talking mm -hmm. with her friends is very mm -hmm. emotional. Well, she had, she had something rare in, in a reporter, I guess, is, uh, is compassion. I wouldn't say, uh, but well, it's easy was, to become jaded as a reporter. Was, you see was, well, terrible it, things happen, and you know you get a little bit of. A, you yeah. have to keep a little bit of a an emotional distance to do your job but, to the best of your ability. But but it it, it did a, a affect her. Yeah. Uh, I know without getting getting into the personal aspect of it, uh, she had a hard time dealing with some. After a while, it, it sort of and and you know she was taking medication and you know all this other kind of stuff. But she wouldn't stop. If something happened, you know she would be right out there. And uh, she was so good at, at, and maybe because she was a woman, because of her demeanor, whatever, because she felt sorry for them. Like Mrs. Woolley, you know, Mar uh, Marsha, or I don't want to, it wasn't Mrs. Woolley, Marsha's mother, uh, or, or the Fernals or whoever she's talking to, you know. She, she got them to open up to her, to trust her, and the cops trusted her. The, the best way to get information out of the police is to be straight with them and, and to get their trust so that they know that you're not going to try to stab them in the back. That was a point that was made in one of the articles where uh, Peoria police had released the name right. of Arlie Ray Davis and his, co and his cohort. And uh, the reporter here you uh, talking about, she, she held it. She was the one who ha held the line when yep. the cops asked her to not put that out there because we won't want them to, to well, know. Well, it was Hamer, I saw the yeah. article too. It was Hamer that was upset because they were hoping if they, if they kept their suspect's names uh, confidential, yeah. that he would drift back to see mom in Peoria sooner than later. Yeah. They thought he would eventually anyway, but if you think, if he knows that they're not looking specifically for him, you know, he might feel freer to kind of, you know, see mom, you know, on, on, on occasion. But, but yeah, but once, once the cat was out of the bag, then he turned Martha loose and, and, you know, and here again, it was all over within a week anyway. It was by, by Thursday or right. something. I think they had both of them wrapped up from, from an incident that happened, happened Sunday night, Monday morning. Uh, but yeah, that, you know, Martha uh, was really exceptional in, in that respect. Uh, uh, she, was, she was a little, um, by self-admission, she was a little bit nutty. Uh, you know, she had a, real, a great laugh and a great sense of humor and, and all that. And she was, she was sort of, uh, you know, the, the, in the newsroom sometimes, a little, you know, uh, newsroom humor and that sort of thing. Uh, but when she was out with the public and the cops and all that, uh, and, and like I said, she was the right person, you know, to do uh, stories like this that gives that personal side. You can have just yeah. the who, who, what, when, and where, you know, you can have the basic details, you know, the crime story itself. Yeah. But she went in and, and got, you know, a sidebar on, on the talking to the family and getting their side of the story. Her reporting is very striking at that time, considering that, you know, so often the victim gets lost in mm -hmm. sort of the, the uh, pulpier aspects of reporting on the killer and what the killer did. We, yeah. tend, to, we tend to focus on Arlie Ray Davis and, mm -hmm. and the horrors that he committed, but uh, Martha, in, in the reporting that I read, was very focused on Lori Gwynn and making sure that people knew who she right, was. Right, right, Yeah, uh, you know, warts and all, I mean, good and bad and yeah. everything. Um, yeah, another thing, one of the, maybe you saw in the story too, I think it was in the, in the Martin Woolley trial, uh, well, when they brought him in for the charges, 
there was some family members, you know, that were in the courthouse yeah. there, and, and they started screaming at him, you know. And, and normally you'd say, oh, I don't want to report that. That's, you know, nobody cares. But Martha got all that and didn't say who, but it was a family right. member that was, you know, screaming at him, why'd you do it, why'd you do it, you know, that sort of thing. And, and that colors the whole thing the way it really is. You know, you're not making up stories. You're not, uh, you know, you're, you're not embellishing things and that sort of thing. So anyway, those are the two for, for this episode of uh, uh, Murders We Wrote. And uh, next time we'll, we'll have two more. We're going to do uh, the uh, uh, murder of Logan Harvey, which was a, a very sad uh, affair. And then we get into the uh, Sylvester uh, Mackinson uh, hanging story from 1882, which will just culminate all of our, our uh, true crime, you know, <laughs> investigations here, uh, because it was quite a story, too, from way back, really, Kiwani back when, so.